0: Welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. In today's episode, we're talking to two scientists, uh, Lisa Riebler from Institute for Experimental Immunology at the University of Zürich. And Tobias Opiala, he is a postdoc at Max Delbrück Center for Molecular Medicine and is working at the Berlin Institute for Medical Systems Biology. And the two of them are involved in a really nice project uh, called LabHive, um, which they will tell us all about in a moment. But it's about sharing resources. And I don't think we talked about sharing resources yet. Have
1: we, Emma? No, I mean... We talked to the European Open Screen people, which kind of had this idea of, of, of sharing and, and of scientists from across different institutes being able to collaborate in that way, but not not in this format. Uh, no.
0: no, this is like a very, uh, yeah, coronavirus-born uh, mm-hmm. project.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, it's, um, it's It's definitely a child of its time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, without further ado... <laughs>
0: Here is Tobias and
2: Lisa.
3: Hi, my name is Lisa. I am a second year PhD student in virology and immunology in Zurich, and I joined um, Team Lab Hive from the beginning.
2: Yeah, hi, I'm Tobias. I am working at the postdoc at the MDC in Berlin. And I also started with LabHive from the beginning.
0: Okay. So uh, can you just tell us what LabHive is?
2: Um, LabHive is a matching platform for very special people. So people who can actually... Um, help with SARS-CoV-2 testing, so qualified volunteers, and um, research labs that can um, donate resources like PCR machines or reagents to SARS-CoV-2 testing. And then, of course, the diagnostic centers who are actually performing all the SARS-CoV-2 testing, um, they can go there and look for resources. So they don't need to send out email requests and then get 500 emails back and have to reply to everybody. But they can actually just look by skill for a volunteer they need currently or for advice from someone if they need it and um, then can get in touch with them directly.
0: So it's like an Airbnb for um, SARS-CoV-2 testing
2: basically. Yeah, it's similar, really, yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: So how did you come up with the idea and why are why you doing this?
3: So we started this in, a, in the We versus Virus hackathon from the German government that was initiated end of March. And we were thinking about what we need in order to get this pandemic under control. And one essential thing is just the testing and getting into a situation where we have enough test capacity in order to do track and trace. So in order to look at one infected person and then test everybody that person came into contact with, and ideally also the people that those came into contact with. And so we were wondering about why all these resources that are just currently available because scientists are in home office, have not much to do, labs are basically not used as much as before, and those resources are basically just there but not used. So that was the initial idea behind Project Lab Hive.
0: Mm-hmm. And who is who's behind it? So it's just just you guys or uh, other PhD students. Is there any company behind it, or who is doing this?
2: Yeah, so it's it's us basically. Uh, ten now, ten people. Um, we started with fifteen. Some are still chipping in of the original band, basically. But overall, we are ten active people now. Um, Really, on a yeah, many students, but also professionals. Um, our design has mainly been done by a professional science communicator, and um, the database has been programmed by students. Uh, they are at TÜV IT, IT uh, security, so it's um, very high level. We have been told by a hospital that tested the security of our database actually. Um, and I mean virologists um, uh, also a um, technical assistant she's uh, studying currently for her master's, and uh, but she gives also very much insight into the diagnostic side so but so it's, it's
0: so it's all volunteers, right? I mean, it's uh it's not like um, I mean, did you did you start an association, or is it just a online project where just whoever wants to join just joins, or how do you organize this thing?
3: So I mean, in the beginning of the hackathon, it was just a few people that wanted to do this and that just got together and started working on this. Um, we have a bit more structure now, so we have certain communication tools, but it's all volunteer work. Um, we got a grant from the um, BMBF, so this is the Ministry of um, research in Germany and they fund a few of us for like living costs but all the work we put in is definitely volunteer work and it's not like a company is behind it or something. We have support from a foundation, the Björn Steiger Foundation, but they mostly help us with just um, the server infrastructure and also some support for outreach but the work we do is definitely volunteer work.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh I mean, one more question to, like, to LabHive. So uh, basically, is it used? I mean, how, how, how many requests do you have now and um, how, how well is it received?
2: Um, we, we are just, we are live since two weeks now and uh, we just started to spread the word. So we have about, I think, 30 volunteers registered now. Um, it's ramping up, it's starting and um, also on the politics side, it starts to become more important. For example, uh, Berlin started to have a real test uh, program, or they want to implement it now. And also, for example, Drosten said now he would like to test all the school teachers and all the kindergartners. And we just counted, And in Germany, you can do about a million tests. This is what the official reported capacity is. And when we have all all these people who are caring for the children at the moment tested once a week, then we need about 1.5 million more tests than we are doing currently. And Germany is at 400,000, so it would be about 2 million we need if we only set in motion this one thing. So... We are guessing that it will come. Actually,
0: mm-hmm. okay. But I find, like, from from an open science perspective, I find it interesting um, why is it something like this not being done for all kinds of um, resources and, um, I mean, basically, there's always uh, a surplus of certain resources in any lab and lack of those in other labs and. Um, I'm not aware of any other initiative like this for like sharing resources. I mean, now it's a pandemic times, but like in normal quiet times, I mean, do you do you think that this would be a model for sharing resources otherwise as well? I,
3: mean, I think the problem why resources aren't shared as much in science is still this competitive aspect, right? Everybody's scared that if you if you discuss open data, for example, if you go to a conference, some some groups are very scared of presenting data that haven't been published yet because they're scared of being scooped. And I think this competitive aspect is not usually a lot in science. I feel like with this pandemic, this loosens up a bit, and I feel like get more of a feeling like we're in the same boat, we're in the same situation, we should work together, this is much more effective. And I'm hoping that this open science aspect gets more and more present in science because if you work together you're just so much more effective i mean we've seen it with this project working with people from different fields has been so great and it's got just a new perspective on things so i'm hoping that this might be a basis for more open science and sharing resources Um, but one has to see whether the research labs are actually willing to do that
1: i think one of the things that makes it easier to share with the pandemic, is there's this goal that we can all agree on, that we need to find out how the the virus works and and, and work towards a vaccine. So it's easier than when there's a shared goal. But I guess when there's multiple goals in multiple different institutions and labs, then that's maybe where the competitiveness comes in so that people are working under different frameworks.
0: Well, on the other hand, the goal has to be kind of like to solve the problems, the challenges of the
1: Humanity. Yeah, I, I guess mean... that's more abstract, though, isn't it? It's more of a, it's a, it, it, it it it's a, it's a it's a good thing to do, but this is maybe more of a palpably, like achievable thing that we could do. And I, 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 you're right, you're absolutely right. I just think that that's how human beings work.
2: So, in in our institute, actually. Uh we are kind of open at least within the institute and uh, we are now in the research campus in the city of berlin in the center directly on the charité and we are very much actually in, in collaboration so we have also people coming from charité labs if they some of their devices break down they can just ask us because they know we know each other so um but, and within the institute, there's even this platform, uh, Open Iris, where you can actually look f- actively for the device you need, and you can get directly into contact with the people who need that. Um, but this is all based on a personal network. And I think this isn't, yeah, it just doesn't exist yet. And um, I think people would at least be open to share their devices. And um, yeah, maybe in the end it comes out of it. And what we also noticed is that the communication between science and diagnostics is very, very limited. And if these people would know where to go, actually, I think they would yeah, maybe start more doing this kind of thing.
0: So, you think that this pandemic is actually um beneficial for for science collaboration, like as it's maybe yeah illustrating or highlighting, making awareness for um that this non-communication exists and could be improved or
2: yeah, I mean, well, never waste a good crisis, right? <laughs> um, <it's>, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, I think. People, I mean, in, in all kinds of, of lives, I mean, we see that, that things are shifting now and we're having lab meetings online and we can do real home office like being in the office and talking still to each other. And um, when you're 10 people in a big in a big office and you cannot really talk because you're disturbing everyone, this makes things sometimes even harder. And if everybody just sits at home and has a connection and can just log into a chat, then yeah, it's it's very easy to actually work together. Sometimes I think
0: uh, this is actually a new perspective. I heard I heard this one that when you're together in the office, you can talk less than when you virtually connect. <laughs> That's a good one. No, but I mean, do you do you feel that really? I mean. I mean all this kind of sure the it's it's a huge potential and now realizing okay when people realize they can be much more efficient together sharing resources um also the way now publishing of um of results is happening and so on but i mean you guys working in science do you feel this is something that's going to stay or is it just a temporary change this um openness, this new so I'm willingness to collaborate. So I'm hoping that it
3: stays, because I enjoy it very much. So I can, I can see it in my lab now. We're starting projects now also on some coronaviruses, not necessarily SARS-CoV-2 at the moment. But I also feel like in science in general, people got this feeling of we have to stick together. And I'm hoping that the relationships that are built and the results that can come out of this open relationship and this open collaboration actually gets people to realize that you can work together and that it doesn't have to be this, we're working against each other on a topic, but rather we're working together. And I think this is something that that can stay. And I'm actually hoping that it's staying. I mean, we see it now with, there's this platform crowdfight um, COVID-19 where scientists can post like, oh, we need a data analyst, for example, or we need someone who has access to a certain data set. And I think this is kind of the way that it, that this pandemic especially is going to shape collaborations. Because recently it's been more like, okay, your professor knows a different professor in the field and that's how you then collaborate or form collaborations. Or it's people you meet at conferences, but it's not necessarily people you don't know that might not necessarily work on the same topic or field as you do. And I feel like this could maybe be a chance to form broader connections and collaborations right because now we
0: don't have to go through a professor you can just search online and basically find another fellow phd student somewhere else was um, yeah exactly wants to and it's so you, right? much
3: easier also now to find expertise on a field that you're not particularly um, versed in or that your lab doesn't necessarily have the expertise before it was more like you can't really write to a different professor you first go through your own boss and now it's more like, okay, let me just see which PhD student might work in a lab that knows how to do that, and you can reach out directly to that PhD student. I feel like that got easier, the communication without necessarily involving the professors from the first step.
0: Um, do you do you have any fears about um how this then gets rewarded? Um meaning um basically your first authorship on paper or um I mean, all those things that make your career traditionally. Um, has Is anybody talking about this in this new so new I world think of sharing? These are things
3: that are generally set once you start a collaboration. So, for example, I am I applied or I registered with this crowdfight COVID-19 platform. And there for a lot of the questions it's or the requests, basically, people say, okay, if you help us with help us with this, and it's a bigger thing. You'll be on the paper once it's published. As for authorships, I think that's always tricky, no matter how you collaborate, whether this goes through your professor or not. Um, I don't think there's a bigger risk of not being rewarded with an authorship in these kind of collaborations, because what it does is it makes it easier to find collaborators. But then the collaboration, you still have to discuss on a person-to-person basis right and then you also need to discuss about well what happens if we get good results and we want to publish them so i don't really see a big issue with that
1: looking at both the bigger picture and and your own personal experience of, of creating this platform for people who want to do something that involves more collaboration maybe build something along the same lines um was there like one thing that you really kind of struggled with or was it like lots of little things i I just kind of wonder how your experience of kind of making that shift to openness actually went
2: i mean it's it's still surprising how little people from the science world actually know about how the diagnostic world works and vice versa and i think it's even though people are using even the same devices, Uh, it's such a, it's a different mindset, actually. And um, I think coming really into contact with these people might help uh, solve that a bit better. I think it's
3: this general aspect of user-centered applications, right? Because in in regular science, when you do your research, of course you want to help, someone at some point, but there's not this direct focus of, okay, I'm doing this experiment and this particular experiment is going to help that patient. And I think that's important whenever you build a product or a platform is looking at who's the user of this application and what do they need in order to have make their life easier. And I think for us, that was understanding how a diagnostic center works and what would be most beneficial for them. And another application might have a different user, but I think this centering your design or your application on the user and what the user actually needs, I think that was the biggest, biggest thing for us.
0: Do you think it's applicable to um, basic science in general? That basic science should be more maybe oriented towards applied science? you know what i mean like basically um because it's user experience i mean as you said um usually does not appear as a concept or a desired yeah, concept in uh, the basic science right the thing is science, basic right?
3: science you do it in order to understand something better and then from understanding something better you get to the applications right i think sometimes you run into the problem that you're so focused on your research that you might do the the research just for the sake of doing research not necessarily to gain knowledge but i think the basic use of basic research is just getting broad and basic information in order to then understand something better and find applications from that so i think a little bit a different approach um and i wouldn't say that basic science doesn't have any use i think that's the wrong wrong kind of seeing basic science
2: and I think this also might be a beneficial thing from, from the crisis because now everything is published in an archive format and, um, people can really start to peer review everything openly. And you see, um, there's just now is going on this, this big thing, uh, between a very big newspaper in Germany. Tabloid and Christian Rosten, who published um, something about the virus levels in children.
1: So just to clarify what Tobias is talking about here, Louisa, can you explain this um, issue with the preprint and the newspaper?
0: Okay, so this uh, what Tobias was referring to is the um, big affair, kind of uh, ongoing right now, a scandal, I would even say. Um, it's um, a tabloid, Bild Zeitung, has accused um, uh, the chief, kind of the, the most prominent um, virologist uh, in Germany right now, the f- kind of the face of the corona crisis, if you can say so, in Germany, <laughs> uh, Professor Dosten, um, of um, basically not knowing what he's talking about. This was based on a Preprint publication where there was a discussion ongoing about the results and the statistics and so on, as you do on preprints. So basically, Bill Titan published this article uh, saying, "Well, scientists and science itself just conflicted, doesn't know what it does, blah blah," and so this person is now there in there for fame and yeah, don't trust and and so on, the typical accusation So, and basically, what happened then that uh, Professor Dustin came out to the public with this article, tweeted it, and um, then the whole scientific community stand up for him.
2: What actually happened is uh, they sent him a requ- uh, so-called request to reply within one hour. Drosten tweeted uh, this email and for people who were not believing in the results they actually also started twittering. and this uh, said, yeah, well, this is totally out of frame and I still endorse the results of the study and everything. Something I think this is very unprecedented and I'm very happy for that, actually, because still the the public opinion is not shifting about this. And this can yeah, easily happen with a big tabloid newspaper.
3: Even though science might be open to communicating more open, I mean, we have preprint servers, new publications, especially now in this pandemic, get much more um, drive also in the public eye and are much more public accessible to the community. But I think the problem is while this happened, we kind of missed out on informing the public about how science communicates within, so like our peer review um, processes. And I think this is where this entire problem comes from, right? We have an internal process of talking about results or pre-results and this now got way more open than it's usually um but at the same time the information on how this communication works was just lacking so i think that's where this conflict came from um but i think what this pandemic especially shows and also what we saw with with this project that we did lab hive is that science communication is just such an essential thing and in general communicating be it with other people from your field, be it with the public. I think that's something that open science promotes, but that we haven't gotten used to in the minds of being a scientist so far. And I think this is a process that just needs to happen, realizing how do I need to communicate what I'm doing and my science um, to others and to the public in order to make it more understandable and relatable.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this internal and external communication that you were saying about, I mean, I think that's a, a, a really crucial thing, actually. So I think that can be one of the fears of opening up science, that that we actually end up losing more trust in science uh, rather than gaining it, which obviously is an issue at the moment with the, you know, the anti-vaxxers and, and these protests and, and all these kind of crazy things that are going on. So, um Yeah, I think that's that is actually a big issue with with open science. It's not just the competitiveness of scientists; it's the um, you know trust in science that may or may not be affected. I mean, personally, I think think the more open you are, the more trust you're
3: communicating your science openly, and for example, in easier terms, for example, to the public, is just something that's lacking in our entire education. Also, right? So I think. A lot of scientists, they also don't feel necessarily comfortable talking about their projects to someone other than colleagues where you can use your specific terms and you know people understand. I think that's also one of these issues that comes into play why some scientists are not as open about what they do specifically (laughs) towards the public Um, But I think this pandemic just shows that you need to be open with information and that the only way people can understand what you want to say is if you inform them about what you're actually doing and what this actually is.
0: I mean, the thing is also that basically... um not every scientist actually has to come commun- I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting discussion. Um, who needs to communicate and when actually it's, it's a more academic discussion kind of about communication modes, but not, uh, personally, I don't think every scientist has to communicate all the time because not everything is, uh, worth communicating like immediately, you know, but there should be a mechanism where, uh, when there is something to communicate or, um, but it should be a mechanism for everybody to be able to communicate if they want. And being able means not everybody's a stage person, not everybody is an eloquent person, not everybody is good in writing, not everybody is comfortable with doing all kinds of communication activities, but it should be a professional, at least uh, nearby, ready to help that person with whatever communication modes and needs they might have. So um, I think, but going back to the to the uh, discussion about the preprints, I think it's really int- it's really important Lisa what you said, and really interesting is basically we haven't really kept the public informed about that we're shifting our way of peer review because preprints are not necessarily not peer reviewed. Actually, they're more, in my opinion, even more peer reviewed than uh, a closed peer review uh, publication um, because there's much more people commenting in real time. And really having conversation about the results instead of just uh, three guys that you don't know who they are, just looking at it and having their opinion and then it comes out in a paper. So <laughs> I think that's, uh, I think that's you really missed out on that now uh, still to communicate to public that the process of science or the process of science publishing has shifted and that preprint is not necessarily a non-peer previewed, uh, peer reviewed. <laughs> Um, Non-reliable information. However, also know I also know from science journalists that they really have a problem now because uh, this uh, basically for scientists it doesn't really matter if you read a peer-reviewed publication or a preprint, because you still have to switch your brain on and think about, do I believe it, do I not? Uh, Show me the data, where's the data? Oh, the statistic is off, whatever. I mean, you still, like, when you read the paper, you still think about it and, like, "Mm, does it really show me what it says it's showing me? Um, But, of course, a science journalist who has a certain science training, but not the in-depth training, um, like a scientist in the field, um, cannot really judge papers like that. So that was, of course, a comfortable filter to have a peer-reviewed, like the stamp of approval, peer-reviewed publication, and that's it, right? If it's in nature, then it must be true somehow. Uh, now it's really difficult because uh, there is no such filter.
2: Uh, so actually, I don't know if you have seen this XKCD comic about exactly that. Um, this news anchor person who wants to say something about a new study, and then in the end they say, according to a new PDF. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um They, it's, I think it puts it really to the point, but actually, I think also, um, it might be of help when, I mean, when a journalist then sees actually, okay, there have been like 10 or 15 peers doing the peer review, um, they, they give actually a credibility to that and you can see as soon as something is engaged other people think it's interesting and if it's not booed down and they say okay but this is totally rubbish then i think they can still see that there's a kind of approval from the scientific community and yes i mean and also with what we see now with all these new formats popping up, of course, the big podcast, the, the public actually has been kind of underestimated, I think, a bit. Um, people are really wanting this. And there's an, an interesting episode about the people who are actually making the Strosten podcast at the moment. Um, how they are relieved that finally they can do longer formats and people really want that. And we see it everywhere in science communication, also on YouTube. Now we have longer videos where you actually have the time to really explain something and not just the typical three-sentence statement in some newspaper.
3: Yeah, and I think what also um, kind of kicks us in the butt as science is just the general topic of digitalization, right? We're used to, we publish in nature. Yes, you can get the articles from the web, but then usually you print them and then you read them from a print format. And basically this print format is usually how you present your data. Whereas now I feel like we get into digitalization, we need to get used to presenting our data via, for example, some online platform in a lab meeting, not necessarily face-to-face, we need to get used to data and also science being presented in formats like podcasts. I think podcasts just got such a huge thing in the recent years. And I think this is kind of like, I hope that this pandemic is just kind of like an opportunity to realize there are so many much, so many more formats than just print media to communicate, also communicate within science. And I think this is really, really starting. I feel like, for example, online learning platforms have gotten such a huge boost now in this pandemic because people are at home and you want to do something. So you just learn something new via a video, for example. And I'm actually hoping that this might give us a little bit of a new updrift in how we communicate our science to each other or to the outside and I think this digital aspect is also what got so apparent in building Lab Hive. It's like a lot of reporting structures also are still very, very old school and not really applicable and scalable for pandemics like this one. And I think that's a that's a big thing as well. Uh, talking about
0: comics, I saw this comic about uh three viruses meet in the bar. So I think the what the bubonic plague and uh, the the flu from nineteen eighteen, and I don't remember what they saying. But basically, the um, the COVID, uh, the SARS CoV two is sitting there with the cocktail. like, well, yeah, I just want to raise the awareness for you know the problems. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think it's interesting, this question of what is motivating scientists to open up. Um, So I guess, I think we all have this when we think, oh, I really should do something, but it takes an external pressure to give us that push. So, you know, the classic example is, right, you know, oh, I really should lose some weight, I really should get fit. But then when your jeans don't fit, or you you get out of breath just going up a flight of stairs, you've got, okay, I really now I need to do it. You know, is that external pressure to kind of change your ways? Um, so I mean, I think it's it's interesting that this started with this via versus virus hackathon hackathon, you know, uh mm-hmm. we versus the virus hackathon. And it came from that place of Um, how do we beat this? How do we come together to win against this external threat? Um, So I think psychologically that's interesting and maybe the the aspect of open science that has been missing this external uh, goal and pressure combination.
0: (laughs) You think the pandemic was not organized soon enough? (laughs) (laughs) It's a conspiracy theory.
1: (laughs) No, I think think what's
0: really uh, my take-home message from this is basically um, somehow Yeah, you know, like for years, people have been working on preparing for this somehow, you know, because all the, like the preprint server were there. Like Mm. there are means to share data quickly and what was needed and people were using it, but what was needed was basically this push to, uh, oh yeah, I want to do something. Oh, this is, there is a way to do it. And it's already there, you know, so it's, you don't have to invent something from scratch. So also this uh, sharing platform, I mean, the, um, the design, like the, kind of the blueprint for that already exists. There's Airbnb, there's Uber, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, all this, you know, the shared economy kind of, it's the same concept, right? It just, yeah. it just used the digital tools to pull like resource and user, um, which are not maybe necessarily in the same place. Um, so I think it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's definitely a child of its time.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In many different ways, right? I think it's uh, circumstances and also, um that we had this pandemic when we have these tools, if you get me. If we'd had this pandemic 10, 15, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have had the same effect because we didn't have that level of virtual digitalization where everything was online and you can meet people and talk to people and watch films with people and share research data with people um, online. And so I think it's one of those kind of zeitgeist things where it's it's, you know the two things come together, um, as well as kind of the weight of 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 pe- what people have been pushing anyway. So, yeah, it, I, I'm very I'd be very interested to to see what happens next and see if this does ch- fundamentally change how we do science and many other things, or whether it's kind of people just just want to go back to the norm and and revert back once things have calmed down. And we talked to so many people already
0: that were like. Afraid, like, you know, people, are, uh, the the idea of that we are afraid of several, like, things to happen, mm. uh, which are negative when it comes to open science practices, and it just never happens. Like, so, if you communicate on your science on Twitter, you just have mm. a conversation about your science on Twitter. Uh, you publish your uh, paper preprint, and then you get scooped. No, you don't. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, all kinds of um, these fears that has been circulated just never really appeared materialized
1: no um i mean i think i think the other side of it is is there's fears but i think there's also obligation i mean we're now in such a terrible situation in terms of you know climate deniers and anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists that i think we now have a moral obligation to make science as um user friendly as possible and and as accessible as possible um uh so it's it's not just about doing science well it's also about how the world we want to live in on a on a bigger scale and you know i think that vi- this pandemic and this virus has very much highlighted both those aspects both the internal way that science needs to change and the external issues that science has to combat
0: mm mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking also when we talking um, um that um when we talked about the science communication, the obligation to communicate. I just remember there's this amazing uh documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve. Yeah, it's about the flat urges, and basically, okay, I'm not gonna spoiler, but basically, take home message is uh at the end, is basically every person who is a well, flat earther in this case uh, is actually a person who had the potential to become a scientist, like a curious person, someone who's mm. really observing the world and curious about it, just gone wrong, basically, just on the yeah. wrong path. And this is because we failed, we as science communicators, scientists, society, to pick them up, to, 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 to promote this interest in a positive way. From yeah. Back beginning basically and i think this is the this thing what's happening now as well there's all these people who are really interested in what's going on but if there's uh, you know if the the denialist conspiracy believe people allow there and catch their attention first then it's natural curiosity and really wanting to know gets kind of sidetracked into something else
1: yeah yeah i i also think that conspiracy theorists are actually incredibly anxious people because they they desperately want to believe that there is some that basically inverted commas the adults in charge know what they're doing because hmm. the thing is with conspiracy theories um is that there's this organized group that are manipulating society and that is far more comforting in a way than the truth which is that it's just chaos. Nobody knows what they're doing, and most of the terrible things in the world are sh- are just because people are greedy and are just trying to do get something for themselves, and it, you know, nothing there's no coherent plan to all this. it's just it's just chaos. And I think people who believe in conspiracy theories basically just want that comfort. Uh, but without admitting they want the comfort of authoritarianism, so they pretend to not like it, but actually they find it quite comforting. So
0: yeah, yeah. Great. And then all the scientists are saying like, well, we know as for now, yeah, <laughs> the exactly. evidence is pointing in
1: this direction. However. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, someone yeah. knows. Someone knows. Someone <laughs> knows. Yeah, the, the Illuminati know, right? Or whatever. The Chinese know, or you know, whatever crazy thing it is. But at yeah. least someone is in charge, even if they're malicious. But yeah, um, mm. it's weird. And we come back again to the same
0: topic as we like, I would say, where I haven't done any proper statistics on it, but <laughs> my, <laughs> my gut feeling is 90% of our podcasts, we're coming back to this thing of communication. Communication yeah. is key. Really. I think,
1: but I mean, I think it is key though. I mean, it's key to everything. And we live in this hyper communication driven world, um, and science is lagging behind because these commercial companies have tapped into that way of using digital tools to fulfill mm. a need. And science hasn't really yet. They haven't haven't made that jump. And mm. I think that's part of the problem of why we keep circling this communication thing, because science is not firing on all cylinders when it comes to communication and using digital and virtual tools to make that... Um, make that message clear to the public. But
0: also even just user-friendly as to fellow scientists, because that's data, for example. Look, I mean, if I do my data, um, I store my data in some format that nobody else can uh, read and it's in my drawer anyway, so nobody can find it. Is it user-friendly? No, it's not. Um, (laughs) No, exactly. It's just, uh, you know, not even very friendly to myself as a user because what do I know what's on which DVD somewhere? (laughs)
1: You know. Exactly. I mean, that's that's <laughs> that's what research data management plans and what uh, FAIR data principles are all, all about. Exactly. Trying to improve the user-friendliness of data for yourself <laughs> and for your colleagues <laughs> and for your fellow scientists. Thank you for listening.
0: This was another episode of Orion Open Science Podcast brought to you by the Orion Open Science Project, dedicated to promote open science across Europe and funded by European Commission. And uh, we produce this podcast here at the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine. Well, now in home office, but
1: connected to the Max Delbruck Center. <laughs> the music was composed and produced and performed by Fabi de Miguel. The sound mixing is done by Paolo Oliveira. And if you'd like to contact us, you can follow us on Twitter at OOSP underscore OrionPod. Uh, if you want to get in touch directly, the email address is orion at mdcminusberlin.de. Yeah, orion at mdc-berlin.de for our English language listeners. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks.